0: For whatever was written in former days, and he is referencing the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we, have, we might have hope. We've been in the New Testament and we want to look now to the Old Testament to see what, what it would instruct us in and how it would give us hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is the center of the Old Testament, just like he's the center of the New. And so, in all of our studies in Jonah, uh, we want to pick up on the Christology or the Jesus of the book of Jonah. Uh, when Jesus met his disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, the text says that uh, beginning from moses this is uh luke twenty four twenty seven, and beginning with moses and all the prophets which would have included the minor prophets uh, jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself uh, we will be in the book of jonah all the way through easter and we will consider finally on easter day the sign of jonah that is given to uh to israel in the uh, death burial and resurrection of Christ so that's where we will proceed Uh, we're going to start today in Jonah chapter 4 Jonah chapter 4 is the culmination of the story and it is at the heart of the theology and the message of the book of Jonah you know the story God calls out to Jonah and says go to Nineveh this great city in Assyria, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and he says, I want you to prophesy against them. Share with them the message that I'm going to give you. Jonah wants nothing to do with that, and so he flees. He goes to Joppa, gets on a boat, and runs away. While on the sea, God confronts him. God confronts the ship with a storm. God creates a crisis moment. He is thrown overboard by wary sailors who are not sure if what they're doing is the best idea. He gets swallowed by a fish, and for three days he is in the belly of that fish where he pens a beautiful prayer of repentance and of uh, um, crying out to God for mercy. God then has the fish expel him, and he goes about the mission that God called him to. But he's still not happy about it. And when he gets to Nineveh, he starts to declare, and probably in a very terse way, the message of God, and then sits on the side of a hill and waits for God to destroy Nineveh, knowing that God's not going to because God is merciful. And that's where we pick up the story here in chapter 4 and verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. The book of Jonah is kind of a weird book in the middle of the Old Testament it's the story of this prodigal prophet as Tim Keller coins it and many of you are doing that study in your life groups but it, it's kind of a weird story in the middle of, of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about the law given in the, in the first five books of the Bible. Then it's the history of Israel's failure to keep that law as they entered into a covenant relationship with God. God's mercy. God sends a hardship. They repent. There's mercy. This goes on until finally God sends them into exile. Uh, in the midst of all this, you have cultural life going on. You have the psalmist writing psalms. And in the middle of all this prophecy and law and history, you have the story of Jonah. A prophet who runs from God. A prophet who is confronted by God. A prophet who, even when he fulfills God's message, is angry about it. It's an illustration that God is using to specifically address His own people. And when, as we go into this text to interpret it, we first want to f- try and figure out what is God teaching Jonah. But that's not his real audience. And it's important for us to realize that as we study the book. God's real audience is his people. Jonah is the person who represents Israel. Israel the attitudes of Israel, the conclusions that Israel has come to about themselves and about their relationship with God. Whatever God says to Jonah, he is saying to his people. And so once we figure out what God says to Jonah and we figure out what it means to the people of God's day, then we need to ask the next question. What is God saying to us? What is God confronting with us? I've entitled the series, Confronted by Grace. Israel is well into their history at this point. Isaiah is probably the next big prophet on the scene. And so we could read Isaiah's prophecies and find out where Israel is in this time, where Israel and Judah are in this time of their history. And the answer is they're wayward. Elisha has just died, Jonah has come on the scene, and Israel is wayward. They they know that God loves them, they know that they are God's people, but they have distorted their view of God, they have, they have kind of uh, rested in their laurels and in God's love and affection, and they have slipped into, if not gone headlong into idolatry, knowing, I'll repent of it later. God's merciful, God's forgiving. They had slipped into a mindset about their relationship with God that it was not mercy and grace as God explains to them in Deuteronomy 7. When He says to them, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest group of people. I didn't choose you because you were the most righteous group of people. I didn't choose you because of anything in you. I chose you because I'm gracious. I chose you because I'm merciful. I didn't choose you because you deserved it. I chose you because I chose to set my love on you. Israel forgot that. And I dare say we forget that. We start thinking that we are who, where we are in life. We're experiencing what we experience because somehow we've earned it. Somehow we deserve it. Somehow, something about us has made God love us and made God bless us. Oh, we, we would talk about being saved by grace, but we've been blessed because of something within us. Our great abilities, our great uh, capabilities, our great uh, uh, exercises and efforts and all that we've done, certainly God is responding to my efforts by His generosity. And the reality is that grace we need to be confronted with grace we need to be confronted and reminded that grace has nothing to do with me it has everything to do with the goodness and the generosity and the mercy of god it was a privilege to talk to this audience In India and to say to them I tell myself and the people that I minister to on a regular basis the only thing I deserve from God is the eternal outpouring of his wrath anything other than that is grace anything other than that is kindness And so that's what's happening in a nutshell. We'll, We'll unpack this more as we go. But that's what's happening in a nutshell. Israel has forgotten that they've been blessed because of grace, not because of something they've done or something they are. And God is leveraging this example with Jonah to confront them with that. And Nineveh's repentance is a slap in the face to God's own people who refuse to repent. The lesson for today is very simple. Grace doesn't belong to us. And what I mean by that is not that we don't have it. We have it. It's ours. It's been given to us, but it's not something that, we, that belongs to us in the way that we think of belonging. My children belong to me. They're my children. There's some level of possession because they come from Debbie's and my relationship. My house belongs to me. Well, it belongs to the bank, but right now I'm the occupant of it. My truck belongs to me. I've purchased this. I've had good credit and been able to get a house with the bank. It belongs. That's not grace. And when we start thinking grace as a possession that we have in sort of this transactional way, our relationship with God, our humility before God, crumbles. And in in that vacuum of humility, pride becomes the basis of that relationship. So let's look at this text. Let's try and figure out kind of conceptually what's happening in Jonah chapter 4. God and Jonah, first of all, have a covenant relationship. There is some type of relationship, and we, we call it a covenant relationship in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there were Kings, leaders who would conquer someone and they would enter into a covenant relationship with them. I will be your Lord and sovereign. If you get attacked, I will send my armies to protect you and you will be my subject. You will pay taxes now and you will show obedience to me as your king. We're in this suzerain covenant relationship. God uses this type of setup, this type of legal exchange, when he establishes a relationship with Abraham and with God's people throughout the Old Testament. And Jonah was in this type of covenant relationship, and you can see it in the language of the text. The first thing that uh, that you see is the communication between the two of them. And Jonah prays that's an important little word prayer it's a child coming to mom and dad and saying can i have you know uh, pancakes this morning for breakfast they don't come to mom and dad and saying um i'd like to place my order uh, i want pancakes this morning got it no no that that's not what the word prayer in the text uh, communicates it communicates a servant coming to his Lord and saying, I have a petition. And so the language here is important. Jonah prays in Jonah 4.2. Um, the Lord interacts with him. He, Jonah prays and God speaks. And the language here is, is that the word of the Lord, chapter 1, came to Jonah. So the greater is speaking to the one who is petitioning. Uh, He commands his subject. He tells him, Jonah, arise and go. And then he evaluates his subject. He asks Jonah, do you have the right to be angry? And the point of this is that God has this relationship with Jonah that he has the right to direct Jonah. He has the right to evaluate Jonah's performance. He has the right to speak to Jonah. And Jonah should respond to that in humility and independence. And Jonah should... Pray and petition and seek out God. And the text shows that Jonah understands that. He's working appropriately within his relationship with God, except when he says, No, I'm headed to another country. Um, Mircea Wolf uh, says, uh, speaking of how this relationship with God changes, he said, We unwittedly reduce God's ways to our ways. And God's thoughts to our thoughts. Our hearts become factories of idols in which we fashion or refashion God to fit our needs and our desires. And this is what has subtly happened in the nation of Israel and what has subtly happened in Jonah's life. He has refashioned God, and so when God commands him, he runs. And we're going to look at this next week, but he runs from the presence of the Lord, which is comical, right? You can run from the presence of mom and dad. You can hide out in your room, but you can't run from the presence of the Lord. I have one of my children who likes to lock his door. He thinks that's going to keep me out. But I have the little pin that you stick in there, right? And you go click, booyah, you know, hello. And I find out he's been you know rearranging his room or some hilarious thing like that. Um, you know, it's, the, it's that subtle thought that I can, I can hide from God or that, that somehow I can disobey God and He doesn't care and it doesn't change our relationship. In fact, our relationship isn't really of unequals. Uh, we're partners with God. Um, Karl Marx uh, addressed this idea when he talked about how mankind does, does not want to be dependent on God. In fact, being dependent on God lessens us Uh, he says uh, uh, being only counts itself as independent uh, which he's speaking about the workers in his day who you know human dignity demands that they be independent that they be autonomous that they be self-dependent and he would only rest on when the when the workers when the the uh, the lower classes had independency and he said, "A being counts itself as independent when it stands on its own feet, and it's uh, when it stands on its own feet, and it stands on its own feet as long as it owes its experience to itself. It stands on its own feet as long as it owns its experience to itself. A man who lives by the grace of another considers himself a dependent being." And he saw that as fundamentally dehumanizing for the workers in the culture to live dependent on another human being. Where the scripture says that that is exactly who we are. That's exactly what we are. We are creation dependent on a creator. We are sinners dependent on the mercy of the judge. And so Jonah had refashioned somehow his relationship with God to justify his fleeing, to justify his anger towards God's mercy. And it's fascinating to think, to see in the text, that Jonah would confront God with his uh, behavior, with God's behavior. Jonah says, I knew exactly what you were like. I knew exactly what you would do, and that's why I fled. Because I know you're merciful, I know you're gracious, I knew exactly what you're going to do, and yes, I have the right to be angry, you pardoned Nineveh. Jonah's exposing that he no longer sees himself as a a servant of the Lord, as an instrument of God's mercy and grace to other people. He sees himself kind of as a hired agent of God who can uh, quit if he wants, or who can disobey the lord if he wants and so this covenant relationship you see it function and you see it fail to function in the book of jonah and remember jonah is not the primary audience israel is and so what god is saying to israel is hey guys you know remember the relationship we're in i'm your i'm your lord I'm the one who has brought us into a relationship by my grace and my mercy. I didn't choose you because of who you were. I set my love upon you as an act of grace. Let's get out of this this mutual type relationship. This, you know, um, I can disobey you or I can choose which commands to obey or I can critique and evaluate your work, God. No, let's, let's, let's get out of that. Let's remember who's who. As believers, we relate to God as our sovereign, not our partner. We are not independent of Him and cannot live or act apart from His sovereignty. That is a great lesson that His people need to learn as they have started to forget. Second thing is God knows Jonah, and Jonah knows God. As you read through the book, and I hope you will uh, start to read through the book if you aren't already, um, this, this idea of we know each other. Yeah, comes out in the book first of all the word of the lord came to jonah we god knew exactly where jonah was uh god you know did not need to uh to track his prophet on find my prophet app okay he knew exactly where jonah was and he knew exactly what jonah was doing and jonah was being faithful although jonah had been consumed with the same nationalism of israel Jonah had been consumed with the same contempt for others. Jonah had, you know, he was, he was a faithful prophet, but he had been too influenced by his culture. So God knew exactly where he was. He probably had taken over after Elisha died. You remember the school of the prophets that Samuel established? Every major prophet would have, uh, would have had the leadership over that school, and that's why we hear from that prophet. Uh, often when you hear from the prophet in the Old Testament, it's the prophet who leads the seminary. Okay, so Jonah had probably taken over after Elisha's death. And um, again, God is using him to address the nation. Jonah knows God. Uh, Jonah calls him Lord. And the word Lord there is in caps. That's Israel's name for, for their covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And so it's interesting to see Jonah appealing to God on those kind of terms, even though he's denying that relationship in his function. Uh, but he knows God's commitment to Israel. He knows God loves him. In fact, that, that is the very thing that frees him to act sinfully in the way he did. Um, and he knows God's compassion. Uh, in the chapter, two, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, the, when he says this, I fled to Tarshish, for I know that you're gracious, I know that you're merciful, I know that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from a disaster. He's quoting Exodus 34 when moses says to god show me your glory god says well no one can see me and live and, Jonah, and moses uh, you know god, god says moses says back to god well well i bet i'm not going to go unless you show me your glory and so god says all right so here's what i'll do I'll, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock i'll cover you with my hand i will allow my glory to pass before you and when that happens god declares his name to moses and guess what god says Same thing Jonah quotes here. that was back, all the way back with Moses. Jonah knows who God is. He knows that God is compassionate. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is gracious. In fact, that's the very thing he counts on for his own sin and his own life. But he takes it for granted. He assumes it instead of being wowed by it instead of being taken aback by the mercy and the grace of God. It's something that somehow seems appropriate. Tim Keller says of of Jonah, he knew that God loved Israel and extended his mercy to his chosen people. He felt in the very marrow of his bones that the special love of God should not be extended to Gentiles above all to evil Gentiles such as the inhabitants of Nineveh. Jonah knew God's love, but it was his. And folks, it only becomes ours when we think somehow we've earned it or we deserve it or God made the right choice when he gave it to us. Jonah held grace for himself, for his tribe, had no desire to see grace for others, let alone be used as an instrument of God's grace for others. Finally, God's grace is a gift to everyone, and this is a a major message of the book. Grace is not something we own, it's not something we can control, it's flow. It comes to whom God wishes, and to those who receive it, they become channels of that grace ministers of that grace not hoarders of it jonah says to or god says to jonah uh you know the story jonah's sitting on the on the side of a mountain he's looking over nineveh probably some distance away waiting for god to destroy the city it's hot so jonah builds some kind of a hut probably using whatever vegetation that he could find but the heat dries those plants up quickly once they're cut. And so you can imagine the heat is oppressive. And in the night, the scripture says, God caused a plant to grow very quickly. It probably was a very broad-leafed plant. It grew very quickly. It sprung up, and it covered and shaded him. And he found relief. And then God sent a worm and that worm destroyed the plant. So the next day you can imagine he wakes up and the plant is dead and it provides no shade. And God confronts him with his anger over the plant, asks him the same question. Do you have the right to be angry? Are you right? Is it right for you to be angry right now? Jonah says, that's right I am. You took away my plant. And God says this, you pity the plant. Look where your mercy is going, Jonah. Look where your emotional energy and and cries out to me for mercy are going. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. Now think about what he just asked, what he just said to Jonah. Who did labor for the plant? It wasn't Jonah. If it wasn't Jonah, who was it? Who labored over that plant? It was God. Who, let's make the connection, who labored over the Ninevites to create them, to sovereignly orchestrate and, and, and oversee all that's happening, and now to confront them because their sin has come up before the Lord? Who cared about the Ninevites because they were His creation? God. Who made it grow? It wasn't Jonah. God made it grow. It didn't just come into being. It had God's fingerprints all over it. Now that, that speaks to everything that we experience in life. Everything that we experience in life has God's fingerprints on it. The cell phone you use is only the discovery of the mysteries of God in this creation. Think of what we will uncover that God has hidden. But it has nothing to do with you. My cell phone has God's fingerprints all over it. It's just the discovery and the opportunity to learn the mysteries of God. And everything that has God's fingerprints on it, He cares about. It's His. He's the one who actually owns it. And so Jonah's being confronted by grace. He's being confronted with who God is. He's being confronted with God's ownership, with God's lordship. He's being confronted with what God cares about. Does God care about the plant? Yes, more than Jonah did. Does God care about Nineveh? Obviously, and a lot more than Jonah did. And this is the message to the nation. God knows, that, and God wants His people to know, I love you, don't doubt that. I love you, I'm committed to you. You are my people, I have chosen you. He wants them to have that message. But He wants them to have it in the context of grace. Not of de- deserving or demanding from God. God gives Because he loves and he delights in giving. I love what Luther said. The love of God does not find the object of his delight. The love of God creates that which is pleasing to it. This is what Israel failed to understand. This is what we fail to understand. And this certainly is what Jonah failed to understand. We think God loves us because he found something. No, God loves us because He created something. And that's fundamentally different. Uh, We're God to cease giving. Speaking of our dependence on Him, everything would cease to exist. This is the way Matthew records Jesus' statement. For He makes, speaking of God His Father, He makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. And He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. We call this common grace that God today was merciful to everyone on the globe. This little marble hanging out in space, God was merciful to all of us today. The evil, the unthankful, God showed kindness. But notice the context. This is in Jesus' statement about loving your enemies. See, it's in that understanding of God's mercy and grace, the undeserved mercy and grace, that's what enables us to love our enemies. That's what enables us to live humbly before others. That's what enables us to take what we have received from God and pass it on to others. To be ministers of grace, not not hoarders of grace. It belongs to me. No, it doesn't. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It's a gift, and it's been given to us so that we can bless others with it. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you will be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Yeah, everyone loves those who love you. Oh, you found goodness in me. You found great. You found, uh, you found something of value in me. Of course you love me. I'll be happy now that you recognize me for who I am to love you back. Everyone does that. But it takes a different understanding of grace to love the people who hate you. To love this people who hurt you and despise you and use you and persecute you. And that only comes when we understand what God has done for us. Do you relate to God covenantly? I guess I should ask, how do you relate to God? I think this is something we all need to go home. We all need to sit before the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, how do I relate to you? Have I become like Israel? Have I become like Jonah where I think you found something in me and that's why we're in relationship? Or do I see myself rightly and I know that my relationship with you is only an act of your grace and your kindness? It'll show up. It'll show up on how you respond when life doesn't go your way, when the sovereign God changes your plans, when the sovereign God doesn't doesn't do what you wanted him to do. When the sovereign God raises a plant and in the same day takes away that plant, he gives you something that grants comfort, that makes you feel loved, and then he takes it away and you wonder, does he love me? It'll reveal itself in how you respond to the providence of God on a daily basis. When you're trying to get somewhere and trying to be on time and and there's an accident up front and you say, come on, Lord, where you get another bill in the mail and you were hoping to spend that money on vacation you're like, come on, Lord, why aren't you ever allowing me to have what I want? Yeah, that's when we've we've slipped out of a covenantal relationship with our sovereign Lord who loves us and we think somehow I deserve better from the hand of God. It'll reveal itself the other way. When you... See the hand of God in hardships. and You say, all right, Lord, I don't know what you're up to, but I trust you. I know that you made me, that you love me, that you redeemed me, that you have brought me into this relationship. I don't know what's going on. I don't like this, but I trust you, Lord. I love how we, I love how we call him Lord and then act like he's not <laughs> or, or resent the fact that he is. Um, do you relate to God covenantally? Do you do you understand the relationship that you have with Him, and that He has with you? Does God's grace pool or flow through you? I said it earlier: the gifts that we've been given are not are, they're, they're for us to enjoy, to uh, to uh, to jump in and swim around and enjoy the grace of God, the pool of God's grace. but it dare not stay there. Just to keep that analogy, maybe it's a bad one, but when we lived in Pensacola, Pensacola, Florida was hot. I mean, oh my word, 7.30 in the morning in April and I was outside having quiet time with the Lord and I was sweating. I'm sure my neighbors were like, man, he's really under conviction, you know, because I'm just pouring down sweat. And it's 7.30 and it's already dangerously hot and humid and we had people in our church who would share their pools with us come jump in our pool and by by the middle of summer it wasn't worth it the pool was just as hot as the, the rest of the world but um, you know, the grace that we've received is meant to be shared it's meant to flow out of us into uh, the context of, of the people we, we we come in touch with what i've received is for me but it's also for others This is what Jonah failed to understand. This is what Israel failed to understand. This is the nationalism that had been created in the the people of God. And it flows out of, it's ours, it's mine. God says, no, I gave it to you so that you could bless others with it. Jonah had no, uh, no readiness to share the grace that he would receive. And we'll talk more about that as, as we go. But does God's grace, is it mine or is it mine for you? Is it something I've received that I can share with you, that I can minister to you? And then finally, how does Jonah compare to Jesus? This is a question we need to ask in every text. What does this text tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think one of the things we can learn is that Jonah, uh, Jonah said, this, this mercy and this love of God is mine. I don't want to share it. And Jesus said, everything I have, I want to give to you. Everything that is mine, I want to be yours. He who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. This is the heart of God demonstrated to us through Jesus. And that's why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen your father. You've seen the father. Everything that is ours is for others. That's the heart of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the story of Jonah, the message of Jonah to your people and to us. Pray that as we study this book, we will understand the grace that we have received and not earned. That we will receive that grace and learn to pass it on to others for the glory of Christ. Amen.